This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You can't argue the fact that debt is overwhelming. Once you get your head around the fact that it exists and that you've got it and you don't know where to, what to do next, uh, it's, it's a tough one. But the good news about this segment, it's all about where do you start. Mm-hmm. Debt's become the new normal, Elaine. You know, if you look around, you know, a crowded place, you probably bet the majority of folks there are carrying some credit card debt, maybe some student loans, some income tax debt. So if you're feeling like you're alone, you're not. Right. But a lot of people fall into this paralysis where they know they've got a problem, they know they should deal with it. But you know what? I'm making minimum payments every month. I'm going to put this out of my mind. I'm going focus on other things. So today's segment, this is, you know, part two of one we did a while ago, which we just, you know, we got into some good depth and I had extra content here, but it's all about where do you start? You know, what are some barriers people have where I can't get help for my debt because? Well, let's let's deal with some of those becauses today. What do you think the number, is there a number one or number two uh, question or call type of call that people, that you get? You know, folks? one that I get a lot, uh, which I don't know if it's the most important one, but it's definitely it's very common, is I've just got no idea who I owe money to. So, wow. you know, how do I even begin to, you know, crack the nut when I'm not even sure, you know, how big or small the problem is? Um, so the way we come at that, so, you know, first off, it's pretty rare that someone's got no idea whatsoever because usually creditors are calling you, harassing you, maybe taking you to court. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if you don't feel loved in this world, miss a few payments and see what happens. That's People right. will follow up with you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you've moved a number of different times uh, or if you've really been, you know, off the grid for, for a period of time and your creditors just can't find you, there is a chance you might have no idea who you owe. And, you know, where do you start that step? Well, first off, I would say, you know, start to make a list of who you think you owe. So remember back, you know, who did you have relationships with? Was there a cell phone company? Was there a cable company? Uh, Various banks that you dealt with? Just try to put down, you know, the best of your ability who you think you owed. Um, And then sometimes folks have just this stack of unopened mail. I say, you're not sure who you owe? Well, I've got this stack of mail here. It's probably in here, but I'm scared to open it. So I tell people, I've said it a lot on this show, I've got a good letter opener in my office, bring in your stacks of mail, we'll go through it and we'll figure things out. Um, But it is a matter of, you know, take it deep breath, put some courage together. The problem is not going to get solved if it's just inside the envelope. It's, it's there regardless of whether you look at it. So, you know, open the mail and look at it. Now, if you don't have anything at all, you don't know your online account, you don't um, have any mail that you haven't opened yet, a great place to start is with the credit bureaus in Canada. Okay. How do you do that? Well, so there's two of them. There's Equifax and TransUnion. And a couple of years ago, you might not have known those names at all because they weren't in the news very much. Now you see them in the news a lot because of privacy breaches, data breaches, and things like that. So you probably heard of these guys before, not in a good way. But the fact is, they've got a file on everybody in Canada who has ever accessed the financial system. And some people think, you know, it's difficult or costly to access that information. It's neither. So they don't make it as easy as they could. You can't just phone up Equifax or TransUnion and say, hey, give me my credit report. They make you either go online, you can pay them a fee if you go to their website directly, 
or, and they don't advertise this much, but on my website on sans-trustee.com, if you click on client resources, uh, we've got a link to a document that you send off to both credit bureaus and for literally no charge at all other than the stamp you put on the envelope, they have to send you your long form credit report and usually that comes within a couple weeks or so. And would that include uh, g- uh, like Canada Revenue, for example, if oh, I owe question. them money? Everything except Canada Revenue okay. would be there typically. So government debts, um, because the government's got way more power than everybody else, they yeah. don't worry too much about dinging your credit rating. They'll just come and take your assets. We'll talk about that separate. Um, but basically anybody else, you know, banks, lines of credit, um, you know, amounts owing for even vehicles or shortfalls or mortgages that you may have had a shortfall on, all of those things, you know, the financial history of your life should be on your credit report. And it's imperative that you get it from both bureaus because believe it or not, I pull my credit every year and there's always inaccuracies. I think everybody should do so and I'm amazed at what's different even between the bureaus that Equifax has something that TransUnion doesn't have and so on and so forth. So Some lenders report to both bureaus, some lenders report to one. Um, so you really have to be careful, get both credit bureaus uh, reports. They can be a bit tough to read. You know, they'll probably run between, you know, four and 15 pages depending on the amount of history there. Uh, but again, it's something that could be a good first step and then with your credit report in hand, make a trip to see the trustee. We'll sit down with it, go through it with you, help you understand what it all means there. What do you do if you're one of those people who cares about uh, not only your credit, but if you've got bad credit? Like, is that a is that a thing? Do people care greatly about that issue. Everybody cares deeply about that issue, yeah. I I guess I'm out there on my own then. (laughs) Well, and and that's a good place to be because part of my life's work is trying to tell people that, you know, in my mind, this focus on a credit rating is the biggest magic trick of misdirection that's being perpetrated on individuals today by the financial industry because we're all being told to focus on this credit rating. Oh, check your credit score online. It's really, really important. But at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before on shows, the behaviors that are rewarded by a credit rating are pretty opposite to what you should be doing. What I mean by that is a credit rating is going to be just stellar if you pay your minimum payments every month on your credit card, even if you never pay that credit card down. You paying your minimum payment might mean that you're paying a ton of interest every month, which everyone would say is financially a bad thing to do, but your credit rating is going to be great for it. And you'll pay it forever too, Exactly, the never-never plan. So so a barrier for people coming in to see us is sometimes, you know, what do I do about my bad credit? And, you know, there's a couple kind of silos that I would put people in. Um, You know, one is saying people who are managing their existing debts. They don't really have a debt problem now. They've got debts they're able to handle or maybe they're out of debt. But their history, their behavior has not been good, and now they're dealing with the impact of that. So maybe there's a bunch of debts that they paid delinquent on, a bunch of bad stories on their credit. So how do they rebuild their credit and move forward? You know, the other category of folks is folks where credit rating is kind of the least of their worries because they owe a ton of money. And for them to move forward, their credit rating is going to have to take a hit. So for the first group, if they are managing their debts, you know, important thing to know about credit rating is it moves and it moves more quickly than you would believe. So people can go from, you know, almost a zero credit rating. If you just come out of a bankruptcy, obviously your credit's really bad to getting a mortgage in as little as two to three years. So if someone is thinking, I've got terrible credit now, your calendar to getting that fixed, about two to three years, no more than that. And a couple really quick things, we've done entire segments on this before, um, but a couple really quick things to do is start off by getting your credit report and making sure it's accurate. There could be an account on there reporting as delinquent. You had no idea about it and it's hurting you every month. So make sure your report is accurate. Uh, One really important metric is utilization. So that means how much of your credit limit are you using on a monthly basis? If your credit limit's $1,000 and you're using $800, your utilization is 80% and that's not good. What you want to do is keep your utilization 
below 50%. So if you need to charge $800, well, it's better to have two cards with $1,000 limits and put $400 on each. And then you're keeping it under that 80%, you, or under that 50% target for utilization. Okay. You know, the last thing is just being a very diligent consumer. Sometimes the smallest bills, the ones that you pay the least attention to, are the ones that hurt your credit the most. And a cell phone is the best example of this. Unpaid cell phone bills deny people for mortgages more than any other debt I've ever seen. That's um, so interesting. Exactly. Because the cell phone companies, they know they're not going to take you to court for a few hundred bucks. So they basically, the, the whatever the cudgel they've got to beat you with is that they're going to hurt your credit rating pretty quickly. Okay. So pay attention to your cell phone bills. It's not worth uh, missing it for a couple months. You will have a negative impact on your credit. Okay. So what about the, the things to do if you're, uh, that you can do to manage your debt? Because I know you've got four really great ideas. Yeah. So if you're in the situation where you know, you've got some debt, you're not sure if it's you know, overwhelming or not, but you do need a better plan to attack it, yeah. you know, a couple strategies you can do. One is very, very straightforward. is to prioritize the highest interest debt. So you know, sit down and make a very simple list of all of your debts and rank them by interest rates. So if you've got a payday loan, that's going to be at the top for sure. Store credit cards are typically up around the 29, 30%. You know, bank credit cards might be 19 to 20%. So put them in a high hierarchy based on interest. And then every month, you know, you're going to have to make the minimum payments on each. So, you know, just plan for that. But whatever extra money you're able to devote, you want to prioritize that 100% to the highest interest rate debt that you've got. So if it's a payday loan, after all the other minimums are paid, whatever extra money you can devote needs to go towards that payday loan, or then to the store credit card or so on and so forth. So that's one strategy to come at it. You know, another is to consider a debt consolidation loan, which we hear about all the time, which sounds wonderful, right? Yeah. If you it could does. ever qualify for one. So that the challenge, and most people come in to me, I'm not the first stop. I'm usually, you know, the second, third, sometimes the last stop. They've tried everything else. And to go to a bank for a consolidation loan, they're going to say, well, do you have assets? Do you have mm-hmm. something that you can give us, you know, free and clear a charge on so that if you don't pay this consolidation loan back, we're going to have some ability to recover our funds. Most of the time, if somebody had assets, they probably wouldn't need the consolidation loan. They'd be getting home equity or something else. Right. So consolidation loans can be quite difficult to qualify for. If you can qualify for them, it's great because it reduces your interest rate. But you really have to be careful because quite often someone consolidates debts from three or four different cards into one loan. They're paying that loan, but then the other three or four cards are now at zero. And that can be a temptation. Maybe an emergency happens and those cards have to get rung up again. So if you're not going to stop using the original cards that got you into trouble, a consolidation loan might just be, again, enlarging the problem. You're going to have those cards again in a few months because you haven't solved the issue that's got you into debt in the first place. And then when you compare that to making a consumer proposal, there's really no comparison. Exactly. So the big deal with a consumer proposal, you know, it's better than a consolidation because you don't pay any interest. So right away, it's a lot more affordable. And instead of being required to pay back all of the debt in full, you are required to pay back what you can afford, which typically it's in the range of, you know, 20 to 50%, give or take, depending on the circumstances. Um, but proposals are almost always accepted by creditors because it's a better recovery than if you were to file for bankruptcy. So if you're in a case where you can legitimately pay all of your debts, you've got a surplus of assets, you couldn't do a consumer proposal to reduce your debt. But the vast majority of folks, definitely everyone I see, they've got very few or no assets or the house is mortgage 
used for what it's worth. A proposal allows them to reduce the debt to what they can afford, gives them time to pay off that reduced balance, and they don't have to file a bankruptcy to deal with the debt. Okay, and then the fourth one being file a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes last because it is your last resort. So if nothing else works, um, you know, if it's a case the debt is so severe that even paying off a third of it or a quarter of it just isn't going to be possible. You know, I have some individuals who a few years ago, they were successful professionals. Uh, they've had some really terrible things happen in their life. And, you know, now their income is under $2,000 a month. They've accumulated debts when their income was very high, you know, over $100,000. Asking someone on $2,000 a month income to pay back a third of $100,000 or, you know, $33,000, that's not going to be possible if that person's going to have any quality of life. So in some cases, a bankruptcy is a better solution because a bankruptcy doesn't change at all based on the amount of the debt. So if it's a consolidation loan or if it's a consumer proposal, you're based on the amount of the debt, your payments, whether it's a percentage of it or the full amount. If it's a bankruptcy, it's based on your income. So if you're in a low income situation, a bankruptcy can often be the right solution to get you back to zero. Now, the other thing to remember is that consumer proposals or bankruptcies have to be done by licensed insolvency trustees. Nobody else can facilitate that for you. That's exactly it. I was actually away on vacation. I met with a client before then. And then when I was away, um, you know, we scheduled a meeting for after he came back in. He's like, you know, I did a lot of research when I was away and I figured out I can't do this on my own. I'm like, yeah, I probably probably could have told (laughs) you that. Yeah, that's why I'm here. But unless you want to go and become a trustee, you can't file a proposal or a bankruptcy. (laughs) If you've got any more questions in your head about, oh, gee, I don't know about that or I don't know what my next step should be, go to the website for Sands & Associates at sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. I'll give you the 1-800 number, 661-3030. Make that uh, first uh, visit, that first consultation, as well as to find an office near you. And there's 17 offices in the Lower Mainland. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment's all about bankruptcy, and we've talked about bankruptcies before, the concept, how they work, but it's still a very scary word for people. That's right. And I just can't... Uh, I just think it's a really important topic every time that we talk about it because mm-hmm. folk, there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it and how it works and how it can impact you. Yeah, so and I'm sometimes glad we're, par- yeah. partial information, partial understanding, you know, well-meaning friends or family members who might have heard something from somebody that can really send people down a bad path. So, um, you know, today we're going to talk about some hesitations, some objections, some, um, you know, even some myths that people think happen if you file for bankruptcy and really clear the air and let people know it is an option. It's not something you go into lightly. You don't go bankrupt on the, on the way to lunch not thinking about it. Right. Um, but for someone who's in a tough situation, I have people tell me often it's one of the best things they ever did in their lives to help them move forward. So I think one of the, the, the key things about the discussion in this segment, at least, or, or something to keep in mind is that, and we've said this before, you're not alone when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So do you have numbers off the top of your head about oh, how, how many people <laughs> declare bankruptcy in, and we're t- like, can we talk about in, in nationally and then sort to narrow it down a bit? Yeah, yeah. So nationally, it ranges between 100 to 120,000 people in Canada every year, year in and year out, do either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And, you know, some province is more prevalent than others. In Quebec, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Newfoundland, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Ontario, proposal rate is much higher. So it's a little different from region to region. In the province of BC in 2018, so for the full year, 
10,000 B.C. consumers filed a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So in and around almost 1,000 people per month every month, and that's starting to accelerate these last few months. And it's not, I mean, uh, not that I want to say that it's not good, but it, boy, oh boy, there's something going on if those are the kinds of numbers that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, uh, oof, boy, it's, uh, it's not a great time. Yeah, and, you know, trustees were always busy because, you know, basically life events happen at different points to everybody, whether it's divorce, job loss, or um, illness, things like that. But definitely there is a tie to the economy, and trustees in 2007 to 2009 were very, very busy because that was the Great Recession. A lot of things were happening and folks needed help. Um, Every trustee that I speak with, I was just at a conference a couple weeks ago with trustees across the country. For the next five years, trustees are imagining it'll be very, very busy, and it's been picking up the last six months across the country. I always think, too, about the cost of things, the cost of living, especially mm-hmm. in the Lower Mainland when, when I'm here. It's like crazy. I don't know how folks are doing it, especially young people are doing it. So yeah. uh, there's lots of reasons why it happens. Well, and it's cost of living and also a cost of doing business. So mm-hmm. many small business people that come in to see me, you know, whether it's a new employer payroll tax or, you know, just various levies that are passed along to them um, and even an inability to even hire staff at a reasonable wage because the cost of living is so high. Yeah. So, yeah, problems of BC, it's not easy to, to be financially successful, I think, at any level, whether you're self-employed or not. So can you walk us through some of the basics of bankruptcy, start at the beginning, what it is, how it works, and mm-hmm. especially in BC? Yeah, so bankruptcy, it's a legal process regulated by the federal government, but you don't need to hire a lawyer or go to court to file. You can't do a bankruptcy on your own. You've got to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, and the trustee is going to guide you through every step of the process. So bankruptcy is going to allow an individual to have virtually all of their debt that's written off if they're no longer able to meet their financial obligations. So it could include credit cards, payday loans, um, overdrafts, student loans, income tax debt, just about any debt that you can incur um, can be discharged as part of a bankruptcy. See, and that's interesting because uh, uh, owing money to the federal government, like income tax, mm-hmm. etc., doesn't always get sort of covered, but in a bankruptcy, it does. Yeah, people are so surprised when I tell them, yeah, tax debt is just like any other debt, and that's the difference of dealing with a trustee because I can use the law. I'm not just an unlicensed credit counselor, for example. Um, I can use the law to reduce and eliminate all debts that are out there. Now, is it very expensive to file for bankruptcy? Well, it depends, right? Okay. So the way bankruptcy works, is it's geared to your income. So if somebody is low income, which means for a single person, they're taking home just under $2,200-ish per month, um, they're in bankruptcy for a period of nine months. So it's not forever. It's not six or seven years. It's nine months. And typically what they pay, instead of making any debt payments, they pay the trustee $200 a month for those nine months. Okay. So bankruptcy can be as inexpensive. I don't know if that's the right word, but as bankruptcy can cost $1,800 as right. a minimum, um, but it is geared to your income. So I've got you know some doctors, dentists who, you know, big debt load, but they're also filing for bankruptcy. And that's based on a percentage of their income they have to pay each month. So if you've never been bankrupt before and you're not low income, you'll be paying a percentage percentage of your income for a year and nine months, so for 21 months in total. Okay, so what do you get to keep over that 21 months? I mean, what mm-hmm. do, or, or what do you lose as well, a result? Right, and that's the, another big myth is, you know, when I tell people, oh, I do bankruptcy work, I'm like, wow, people think that must be terrible. You must be going to people's houses, taking everything that they own in their first bone. I'm like, and their firstborn. I'm like, no, we know the opposite is really true. So basically people keep all of their assets when they go through bankruptcy, except for some assets, which, you know, common sense wise, you would understand you'd have to give up. So 
People keep all of their household furniture if they file for bankruptcy. They keep all of their clothing and their medical aids. They keep their tools of the trade if they're worth less than $10,000 in total, which they usually are. They keep a vehicle if their equity in the vehicle is worth less than $5,000. They keep their RRSPs, which people, again, a lot of people now know don't cash in your RRSPs to pay debt because they're protected. But a few years ago, almost on a weekly basis, I was seeing people cashing in their RRSPs, giving assets they wouldn't have had to give um, to satisfy their debts. So for the vast majority of bankruptcies that we see, we don't have to seize any assets because all the folks have is basically exempt assets. Now, if someone's got, you know, I've never seen this, I've got the yacht or the airplane or things like that. Odds are, first off, they would have sold them long ago before they're at the trustee's door. But those type of assets, things beyond what you need to meet your basic needs, those you couldn't keep as part of a bankruptcy. Okay, so um, you've got a question here. What are the ways that bankruptcy affects the person who's filing? We Mm -hmm. sort of covered some of that already. Yeah, so two big ones. First off, and this makes sense, you get out of debt. So all the debts get forgiven as soon as you're discharged from bankruptcy, and that can be as soon as nine months from the day that you file. Right. Uh, Another big one, and this is life-changing, is you get relief. The creditors can't contact you anymore. They can't call you, harass you, take you to court, demand any payments. They can do nothing to you while you're under the protection of a trustee. Okay. So what are the ways, and this is is the interesting part, or not the other stuff you've said isn't interesting, (laughs) but that bankruptcy doesn't affect. It's sort of these are the myths. These are, I think I got about four or five of these you know, top fears, four of them here that, you know, people, they consistently say to me that they're really hesitant to take action because. So first off is that your spouse is not automatically deemed to be filing bankruptcy. So one member of a married couple could file a bankruptcy or do a proposal and literally have zero impact on the other person. It does not transfer from spouse to spouse. Uh, A second one here is you're not prohibited from changing jobs or employers. So I generally never have to reach out to an employer to tell them somebody's in bankruptcy. I'd only be doing that if they were already having their wages garnished and the employer already knows there's an issue and I'm helping with it. But you're free to, to change jobs anywhere you want. There's generally no prohibition for a job that you can or can't take. What about credit? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I sort of stuck there? A lot of people think if you're in bankruptcy, there's a law against you getting credit. Now, literally the day after you filed the bankruptcy, you could apply for credit, but obviously we advise against it and the law says you have to tell people you're in the state of bankruptcy. Right. But once you're discharged, you know, bankruptcy is going to be on your credit report for six years after you finish it. But most people, the day after they're discharged, they start rebuilding their credit and within two or three years, they've got better credit than when they started. Okay. And what about uh, wanting to travel or mm-hmm. travel for work? Am I am I stopped from doing that? Absolutely not. So you're free to move, free to travel. There's no impact on passports whatsoever. Uh, if you're going through a bankruptcy, there's certain things that you have to do, duties you have to perform, like you know, giving monthly budgets and things like that. Those could be done remotely. Um, the only time you really have to see the trustee is for those two counseling sessions, financial counseling. So typically you try to coordinate that you can be with the trustee for those in person, but there are provisions do them by telephone or even over Skype if someone's out of the country. So lots of good information there. And I and I want to stress uh, the website for Sands & Associates. It's sands-trustee.com. And I know, Blair, that a lot of these questions and good answers are also on the website, Absolutely. too. Yeah, I mean, there's literally pages of good information, and it's all divided up into, into sections, so you don't have to read everything to find one small answer. Uh, but do check it out, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, one 800 Get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you. And there's 17 offices in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us, Raj Hara, who uh, is a Senior Vice President at Sands & Associates. He's a licensed insolvency trustee, chartered professional accountant, as well as certified management accountant and chartered insolvency and restructuring professional with over 10 years of experience and fluent in Punjabi. So if you're thinking, oh, gee, I've got family that could use some help, uh, and Punjabi is their is their first language, Raj is the guy to go see, which is, I think, terrific that Sands & Associates is, is able to sort of get through those language barriers for folks. Um, we're talking about, I want to start, Raj, if I can, when, when you walked in here this afternoon, you were saying, you know what, I was listening, people are talking about the economy. You were just on SkyTrain coming into town, is that right? Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that was so interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems to be on everyone's mind what's going on. I know it is on mine. Uh, just if you're paying attention to what's going on in the news, it's a bit, you know, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Unsettling, I think, is probably the best word to describe it. Uh, but you overheard conversations similar as well, people wondering what's going on these days. Yeah, it was odd to hear an individual talking about an inverted yield curve. <laughs> and, Whatever that is. And I have yeah. to say, that I'm, I'm not going to try to define it here on air, but <laughs> uh, it's generally, a, it's an indicator of a recession. And you're also hearing people talking about reducing interest rates. You know, sure. we went through this big push of the stress tests on mortgages. Now the Bank of Canada is talking about reducing rates. And, yeah. um, you know, if it's any indicator, just going through my social media feed, there's uh, investment planners talking about what do you do in a low interest rate economy, why well, have a balanced portfolio. So I think uh, the market conditions are front of mind for a, a lot of individuals. I think so too. And I think so too. People that wouldn't even, normally be thinking about it are thinking about it right now. You're even hearing of negative interest rates, which, my God, how does that work? They're paying you money to borrow. Exactly. That's happening in, in some countries around the world. So, And yeah, just to your point, Raj, yeah, I didn't even, I'd never heard the inverted yield curve outside of an econ classroom. I'm hearing it as well. It's pop culture right now. It seems to be forecasting when this economy is going to tip over the cliff, not if. That's interesting. Very interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. well, let's get started then. Uh, can we go with a first question that we've got on the on the sheet about with Raj? Certainly. So the difference, uh, it, what is different uh, about helping people with businesses versus helping individuals who don't have their own business? I mean, it's I mean, we're, we're privy to a lot of information this, these days and data from all sorts and ways of life. But there is a big difference between the two. And people's attitudes must be very different as well. Like what's going to affect me and what's going to affect you? Two different things. Um, yeah, there is definitely a difference because uh, a business is a separate entity. And you need to understand how the person's operating it. And if anything, a business is like a child for a lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. You often hear that the business is my baby, right? It's yeah. Per- yeah, it's yeah. personal. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It's they've put everything into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's very difficult to come to a point to say, well, maybe the business isn't viable. Um, usually an individual will come in and they'll have phone calls from creditors. They're being harassed and they know they're at a debt problem and, and, and it's just not going to solve itself. Mm-hmm. But with business owners, what I find is getting to that understanding or coming to that acceptance that the business may not be viable. Yep. it's very difficult to come to. And I think that's a clear difference is for uh, a business to set up, a corporation is set up to separate yourself from risk. But often entrepreneurs bring themselves right into the fold of mm-hmm. the risk and they don't realize how far they've come in until they take a moment to realize where they are and take uh, take skill and and the stock of where they are and how they move forward from there. And something might have pushed them to, to 
force them to take stock, whatever whatever mm-hmm. it may be, right? And there's a lot of influences that impact folks in business. Yeah, I find the, the one thing consistently that I find with, with people um, who have their own business when eventually they're coming to see me is they often say, oh my God, I let this go too long. I invested too many personal assets. It's so hard, I think, to figure out when is the last dollar that you're going to invest into your business um, because you're an eternal optimist as an entrepreneur. You know, if, if August was terrible, you think September is going to be three times that you're going to get it back and so on and so forth. The next quarter, the next year, is always going to be better. So to have someone from a third party point of view look at the cold hard facts and say, you know, you really have to consider where, whether this is a viable business, that can be difficult, that can be emotional. And even the way you deliver that, that news, Raj, I know if it's me, I'm not saying your business isn't viable. That's like saying, you know, I don't like your child, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. it's here's a couple things to consider. And, you know, are you comfortable with the level of exposure, the level of risk that you're now taking on as part of the business? I found um, in discussions with business owners, there's, there's really a couple of points that they, I help them think about so they can determine whether or not their business is viable. The first thing is straightforward is, uh, do you owe any money to Canada Revenue Agency for GST or source deductions? Yeah. Uh, forget the corporate income tax. Let's just talk about those two. Because yeah. GST, you've collected. It's not really revenue. You've collected it and nice. you're required to remit it to the crown. Yeah. Or source deductions, you've taken that money off your employee's paycheck and you're required to send that to CRA. It's just, it's, it's not real revenue. If you're relying on that to bankroll your business, well, then you've got to give it a hard thought, okay? And and if that's not happening, well, that's a very positive if you're not doing that. But the next thing is, it, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation with business owners. And I, I asked them the question, so if you were to go work for a competitor, what would you want them to pay you? Mm-hmm. And they hum and they haw and they figure it out and they come up with a number. I said, well, how much was your corporation able to pay you last year? Oh, paid me a third of what I would expect. Well, then now we have to have a conversation of how can this business, you should be making more than what uh, somebody else would be paying you because if you're going to work for a third mm, party, the they, risk. They, mm. there's a risk. And plus the third party, if they employ you, they need to be, in order for commerce, they, they need to be making more money off of you than what you they're paying you as a salary, mm-hmm. or else the business is not viable. Right. So that's that's the interesting conversation, and usually a, a starting point to then start talking about what the options they have with their corporation or personally, right? So that's interesting. So just in really simple terms, is CRA your biggest source of financing? That's mm-hmm. a big test. Is it the GST and the source deduction, those funds that aren't yours, but you're using? Is that the way that you're keeping operating? That's a really good litmus test to start. Um, and then your, your other point as well is, you know, are you getting fair value for your services? And it should be even higher than fair value because you're taking the risk as an entrepreneur. I can think about a lot of individuals I've sat down with, you know, if they, even if they're not using the government to finance them, they're almost never getting fair value for what they're doing. They might have been in the past, but as the business declines, the, op, the entrepreneur is always the last to be paid, takes the least out at the end of the day. They, they also try to make... They, uh, end up making uh, matters worse for themselves is just the way that they draw their salary out of the business too. They may not take it as a paycheck. They may take it as a dividend because they've received tax advice that taking out as a dividend, you pay less tax. That's great advice if the company is solvent. But if it's having financial difficulty, well, that what that ends up doing is Canada Revenue Agency views that and they'll come after you personally as a director if you're taking money out of a company as a dividend where their thought process is, why are you paying money to the shareholders when you owe money to the, to the government? So, you know, that's a bit of a pickle in itself. Well, and another point on that too, Raj, is if you're taking all your money in dividends, you know, when you hit age 65 and you want your CPP, what happens then? You haven't paid in. 
Exactly. Right? So uh, there's a couple things that you want to think about. You know, we deal with individuals sometimes where they've been doing cash jobs for a long time. And you, know, you tell them, well, obviously it's illegal, so on and so forth. But there is a financial impact as well that at age 65, you need those CPP benefits and they're not going to be there if you don't actually pay in. So it's important to have a salary even as an entrepreneur. I agree. When's the best time to come and see either one of you guys? If I'm a business, if I'm an entrepreneur, I would think before I start before I started up or just after I start up because what you guys have been talking about are really, really important key things, especially the future stuff when you're talking about, well, when you're 60 or 65 and you're taking CPP and you Mm -hmm. just haven't paid into it. I mean, there's there's a... there's a lot of things that one has to pay attention to when you're doing this kind of work. Yeah, and you know, we've often said on this show, you know, it's it's almost a travesty that there's no crash course required. There's right. nothing you need to do to suddenly become self-employed. You know, you can even start up a corporation sometimes online without even sitting down with a lawyer. So all this structuring stuff that we're talking about seems, you know, just very basic things. Of course, you should do it, but unless you actively go out and research it, you're not going to know this stuff, and you. Often will make some mistakes there. So, um, you know, a trustee is typically not someone you see when you start up your business. You'd be more sitting down with a lawyer. But absolutely, if you've got questions on your structure or where you're heading, phone Raj or phone myself, and we'd be happy to help. Well, yeah, how to avoid this, this, and this at the end of the day. That's why, that's why I'd go and see you guys. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I know one thing, Raj, that people often really wonder and it hesitates for them to come in to see us is they say, you know, if I go into bankruptcy, does it mean I lose my business? Or if I do my proposal, do I lose my business? Can I still operate? Can I I still, again, have my business if I deal with my debts. So how do you answer a question like that? Well, uh, there's a requirement, uh, I guess there's a restriction that if you're in bankruptcy, you cannot be a director of a corporation. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you can be a director of a corporation if if you file the consumer proposal. So if you're a business owner, most business owners will go towards a consumer proposal. However, uh, you don't want to keep the business afloat if there's a whole bunch of debt within the company which you are going to personally be liable for. It might mm-hmm. be worthwhile just to close the business for that. So common ones are source, uh, Canada Revenue Agency debts for GST and source deductions. If the corporation's unable to pay, well, that's the director's liability. So then mm-hmm. those are one things. Or um, a topic that we hear people talking about piercing the corporate veil, that means that uh, uh, directors have uh, signed guarantees uh, personally guaranteed corporate debts. So if the corporation's unable to pay, well, then it falls upon the director. So I think back to your question, yeah, if, you, if you're if you in a director of a corporation, you can file a proposal, but you got to be careful about that. See what kind of liability you've opened your, yourself up to under the corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, a common one that people don't really realize is a commercial lease. Because mm-hmm. that's a lease is a commitment for five years. And if you're only one year into it, you're still personally liable for the other four years, right. which could be a large number. Yeah, I know sometimes when I sit down with individuals too, sometimes we even look at the structure and say, you are incorporated now, but do you need to be? Should you be? There's extra costs. You've got a separate entity now, extra financial statements, accounting, legal fees. Sometimes people are better off being a proprietor. And so sometimes doing a proposal or even going through a bankruptcy, it gives someone a chance to just basically reset their entire structure and go back to something sometimes a little more simple, definitely a little more cost effective. Because oftentimes the reason someone incorporated, you know, to protect themselves from liability, to your point, Raj, they end up frustrating that because they do guarantee things or they get into trouble with the government, which you can't limit yourself from source deductions or GST debt that follows the director of the corporation. Now we've just got about a minute left. Could we have a success story where somebody that you've helped and they've figured it out and they've come out the other end? 
Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. There's several, there's several success Yay. stories. Yeah. So good to hear. Uh, so we talk about consumer proposal. Yeah. There's a corporate proposal. So it's a division one proposal, but let's not get technical on it. And what it basically is is a business owner saying, "Listen, I can't pay back my debts in full, but this is what I can offer to pay the creditors." Okay. And Canada Revenue Agency is quite sympathetic towards it as well too, because if it's a corporation with ten or fifteen employees. If the corporation goes into bankruptcy, well, then 10 or 15 families have lost a salary. And it's very difficult to obtain, in certain industries, hard to re- uh, obtain employment as well, too. So we've helped out companies where we've developed a plan. It's gone to their creditors. It's allowed them to stay in business. And in fact, their old suppliers continue to supply them as well, too. And they continue in, uh, going forward and still have a great business. Uh, uh, one that we helped out several years ago is continuing to expand, and they're in the hospitality business doing fantastic. But wow. they just needed a fresh start to move forward. Uh, check out the website, sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with such good information. Or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first consultation and find an office near you. There's 17 in British Columbia. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment's all about seize or sue. Mm -hmm. And and why are we doing this segment again? Well, you know what, Elaine? This is one wherever, you know, in polite conversation, this matter comes up. Nobody knows that this exists. So I've been, you know, we've been doing the show for a number of years and still, you know, if, I, if I'm having a haircut, for example, and talking to my barber, he mentioned to me, you know, last month, oh, you know, my son is really worried because he's got this vehicle. He owes way more than what it's worth and he doesn't know what to do with it. Um, I have people come in to see me with meetings, you know, every week and their only issue is, you know, sometimes they've got a Kia Rio, which is worth $12,000 and they owe $40,000 on it. They're underwater on their car loan and they don't know what can happen to it. So this is all about uh, having a vehicle, either uh, having a loan on the vehicle or, yeah, it's just if you've taken out money to purchase it, right? Yeah, we're going to go into good detail on okay. all of that. But at the end of the day, it's if you've got a car loan, you're underwater on that car loan, meaning that you owe more than what that car is worth. Listen up, because we're going to tell you some things in the province of BC that only apply here that can give you some options you didn't know about. Okay, good. So these are the basics of what seize or sue means and how the rules apply in BC. And I take it that British Columbia is different than other provinces? Yeah, so I'm originally from Ontario, so I can speak to Ontario. And what happens in Ontario is if you financed a vehicle, um, you know, say we got that Kia Rio that we're talking about, and, you know, it's worth $12,000 at auction, and the loan is at $40,000 right now. If you stop making payments on that car in Ontario and they come and repossess the car, um, they're going to take the first 12000 and then they're going to give you a bill saying, well, you owe us the other 28000 plus all of our costs, so you're on the hook for the whole thing. Wow. And, yeah. you ha- and that's it. You don't have a vehicle it. to sell or anything else. It's gone and you owe the money. And you've got a hangover. So okay. let's talk about how it's different in BC Yeah, here. so how <laughs> is it different in BC? Right. So some background here. So in BC, there's a law that governs security interests, and it's called the Personal Property Security Act. And what it does, it sets out some provisions for when this concept called seize or sue would apply. And the conditions are that you reside in BC, uh, your vehicle has been used primarily for personal, family, or household purposes. So what's not listed there is business. Right. So if you're using a vehicle for business, this is not going to work for you, but okay. otherwise it could. Your vehicle is registered in BC 
and you've got a loan against the vehicle in which the lender has some security. They've registered a charge or a lien against the vehicle. Okay. So if all those those uh, conditions are satisfied, what seize or sue means is that in the event you're unable to continue to pay or you simply stop paying on your vehicle loan, the creditor has to take one of the actions against you, but not both. So they can either seize the vehicle pursuant to the lending terms, and that ends all of your future payment obligations. And that's the that's the difference you were talking about then in Ontario, mm-hmm. because your uh, payment obligations are done at that point. So you don't owe any more money on that if they take right. it. Right. So that's really important that we get that clear. So yeah, yeah so in, in the province of BC, they have to decide either yes. they're going to seize the vehicle, and if they seize the vehicle, that extinguishes all of your financial obligations. Or they're going to say, you know what, keep the vehicle, we're going to sue you for the full amount of the loan outstanding, but they can't do both. Right. So in the province like Ontario, which I mentioned, they can do both. They can seize the vehicle, and then they can sue you for all of the unpaid loans. Uh, In the province of BC, they can't do that. Now, is a car dealer, is a car financing organization ever going to tell you this? No. They're going to tell you it's exactly the same as it is in provinces like Ontario, that you, if you don't pay this debt back, we're going to come after you for the full amount of the loan plus um, whatever we recover from the seized vehicle. They can't do that in the province of BC. And it's to their advantage not to tell you that. And that's why it's so important to know. Mm-hmm. That's All right. right. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, so your vehicle's repossessed under the loan agreement's terms that your creditor may not ask you for further payments mm-hmm. and ask you to pay the difference on any shortfall. So can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so it's it's more of a case of, you know, when would they choose to, when would they choose to seize the vehicle or not? Okay. And typically if the vehicle is still worth a lot, you know, if the vehicle is worth say 25 grand, the loan is for 30,000, they're going to take the vehicle back because, you know, your best loss is something that's certain. They know getting the vehicle back, they're going to sell it, they're going to at least recover most of the loan. You know, if the car is more than two-thirds paid off, or if the car's of relatively little value, um, you know, maybe it's been in a few accidents and it's worth, you know, $3,000 on a loan of $30,000, they might say, you know what, seize, uh, keep the car yourself, we're going to sue you for the full amount. Okay. But in almost every case that I've seen, I can just think of, you know, one or two, and again, 10 plus years of being a trustee, they opt to seize the vehicle because there's some certainty there, they're getting an asset back, um, and then they can't come after you for the shortfall thereafter. Okay, so can we move on to the exceptions for yeah. the Caesar? Sue rule in this province? Yeah, I think the exceptions are important. So overall, it's relatively simple. If you've got a vehicle, you stop making the payments, they come to get it and that it should extinguish your liability. But the exceptions to that, first off, is a lease. This does not apply at all if it's a true lease. Okay, and a lot of people lease vehicles. That's right. So if it's the case, you stop making payments on the lease, they're going to repossess the vehicle, but they're absolutely able to hold you accountable for the terms of that lease contract. You signed to contract for all of these payments, and they have the right to, to follow up with you for every missed payment. So it's not it, it's not determined by the value of the vehicle, but the contract that you signed. Yes, you're in breach of a contract if you're not honoring the terms of a lease. So again, they have the right to sue you for specific performance, which means you make all the payments or to sue you for actual damages. But at the end of the day, if a lease is repossessed, that is not the end of the story. It's often the beginning of the story and they will be following up with you for all the unpaid amounts there. Okay. So it, now if you're, if you've leased a vehicle and you give it up, mm-hmm. does that, is that helpful at all? Or are you still on the hook? 
Well, it depends. So if you've transferred the lease to somebody else and they've affirmed all of the obligations, then you're fine. Sure, right? that you know, makes there's, sense. There's you know, various sites online where you can try to do it, sometimes with success, sometimes without, sometimes you pay a, you know, an amount for an incentive, uh, but that is an option. So if someone's thinking, you know, I can't afford this lease, it's definitely in their best interest to try to mitigate as much as possible. Try sure. to get somebody else to take the lease, try to work with a dealership, and, you know, get it marketed or something like that. Okay. But a lease is far more difficult to get out of than a financing would be. Okay, so are there some basic points for people to be aware of and just in case your vehicle is repossessed then? Well, and you know, another one to, to think about here, another exception yeah. um, is if you voluntarily surrender the vehicle. Right. So I tend to advise people, you know, if you're going to be exploring this idea of seize or sue and you actually don't wait for them to seize the vehicle, but you just go and drop it off, you sign yeah. a voluntary surrender, you could be contracting out of the provisions in the law. So what you'd want to do is I generally advise people, you know, if if money was no object, you would never sign anything unless your lawyer reviewed it first, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So why would you sign something someone puts in front of you saying, hey, you got to sign this to give me back the vehicle? You don't have to sign anything when they come to get the vehicle back. And I'm happy as a trustee if someone sends me a document and says, hey, just before I sign this, you know, am I going to frustrate myself from seize or sue or not? So my advice typically is don't sign anything when you're giving the vehicle back and be aware that if it's not a seizure, if it's a voluntary surrender, it can be not as black and white that you would be protected from the shortfall there. Okay, so that's the difference. What about buyer's remorse in this province? How does that work? Yeah, we did some research on that for the segment, and it basically doesn't exist in in the province of BC. Um, So, you know, there's no buyer's remorse law that governs all vehicle transactions. You know, if your dealership had a return policy, might be something there. Um, You know, if the vehicle didn't meet standards for roadworthiness when you made the purchase, there's, you know, an option to get out of it. But obviously, if you're down the road, that's not going to worry, not going to work too much. There was some material misrepresentation about the vehicle, um, or there is a one clear day cooling off period for a lease. So again, if you, oh. if you sign a lease, you just get one day to cool off after it, but apparently that exists as well. But for other vehicle transactions, there's no uh, you know, buyer's remorse laws or cooling off period or things like that. That's kind of good for the lease though, that there's a one day cooling off period, because mm-hmm. you could wake up the next morning and go, what the heck have I just done? Yeah. Because the lease is always, you're always paying far more money for the vehicle than if you just bought it. Yeah, typically there's going to be some interest cost to it. It can sure. make sense in some cases, but you know, quite often it's a more expensive option. For the most, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in winding up, we just got about a minute or so left. What are the? Th- what do you think the things are that we need to leave the folks with on this? You know, I, we have a lot of information. Still. Yeah, I think just a couple really key things. If your vehicle is going to be seized, the way it's going to work um, is a bailiff is going to show up. It's not going to be confrontational. These guys aren't here to have any fights with anybody. Uh, but what you need to do is make sure that the vehicle is insured. Uh, sorry, is insured adequately. So don't cancel the ICBC insurance until the vehicle has been taken away and make sure you get your license plates off of it when the vehicle is being taken because without those plates, you won't be able to cancel the insurance. And that would include all your stuff as well. Make sure all your stuff is out of there. That's right. If you've got any more questions, uh, check the website, sands-trustee.com or better yet, if you're in this predicament, I know uh, the folks at Sands & Associates are more than happy to talk to you about it. Uh, You can give them a call. They're one 800 one eight hundred number is six six one thirty thirty. You can get that first consultation absolutely free, and find one of their offices. They've got seventeen offices throughout British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.